Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, January 13th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israel responds to South Africa's Gaza genocide claims in The Hague. The U.S. and U.K. bomb Houthi targets in Yemen. U.S. House Speaker Johnson and Sam Altman discuss AI regulation. Rishi Sunak promises a 100-year partnership with Ukraine and inks a security pact. Poland's opposition holds a mass anti-government protest. Texas blocks federal immigration agents from a key area on the U.S. southern border. Hunter Biden pleads not guilty to federal tax charges. The FAA will audit Boeing following the recent Alaska Airlines door incident. A new study reports that U.K. maternity deaths hit a 20-year high. And a new discovery of deep space megastructures yields cosmic questions. News from the International Court of Justice as Israel responds to genocide allegations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, New Matilda, and the Times of Israel. As Israeli lawyers began on Friday their response to the genocide case South Africa put forward before the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, in The Hague, legal advisor Tal Becker said that such claims are false and, quote, grossly distorted, arguing that Israel is in a self-defense war against Hamas, not against the Palestinian people. This comes as the UN-backed ICJ heard arguments from South Africa on Thursday, as the country accused the Jewish state of committing genocide against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip in breach of the 2048 Genocide Convention. After the 17-judge bench was impaneled, including a, quote, ad hoc judge from each of the two parties, the two-day preliminary hearing for an emergency order centered around South Africa's application to the court in order to determine whether the World Court has jurisdiction to rule on this case. Pretoria wants the ICJ to declare that Israel has breached the convention and for it to issue legally binding provisional measures to cease hostilities in Gaza. But Israel claims that the court has no jurisdiction because Palestinians don't belong to an independent sovereign state. Outlining South Africa's argument to the court on Thursday, lawyer Adila Hassim stated that Israel violated Article 2, Parts A through D by respectively carrying out mass killings, inflicting serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately imposing conditions that cannot sustain life, and imposing measures intended to prevent births within a group. Shortly thereafter, lawyer Tembika Nkaitobi sought to show that Israel also demonstrated genocidal intent, pointing to statements by Israeli political and military leaders, including Defense Minister Yoav Gallant's description of Palestinians as, quote, human animals, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's reference to the biblical injunction to destroy Amalek. Eric just laid out the facts for us. We'd like to separate those from the narrative spins. Let's start with the pro-Israel spin from Jerusalem Post. If we lived in a perfect, or at least a fair world, the panel hearing this preposterous case would base their decision solely on legal merits, thus ruling in favor of Israel. However, given the nature of the United Nations, the odds are 50-50, as one must expect political considerations to come into play as countries such as Lebanon, China, and Russia will lobby their jurists on how to rule in this case. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Palestinians in Gaza, as well as the West Bank, and around the world, are immensely grateful to South Africa for bringing this case to the ICJ. The symbolism of this is not lost on Palestinians, who understand that South Africa has also suffered from apartheid, racial discrimination, and genocide. Hopefully, this opportunity for justice and accountability will not be missed. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narrative predictions from the Metaculous community. 
This one says there's a 56% chance that the International Court of Justice will order provisional measures against Israel before March of 2024. The U.S. and U.K. launch strikes in Yemen against the Houthis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Financial Times, the New Arab, CNN, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, and the Associated Press. United States and United Kingdom forces launched a series of air and naval strikes on multiple targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen on Thursday, following missile and drone attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea by the alleged Iran-backed group. According to U.S. Air Force's Central Commander Lt. Gen. Alex Grinkowicz, the U.S. and coalition forces struck more than 60 targets at 16 sites, including command and control nodes, munitions depots, production facilities, and air defense radar systems. U.S. President Biden referred to the Houthi attacks on maritime interests in the Red Sea as unprecedented and affirmed further action would be taken as needed. Abdul Malik al-Houthi, the Houthi's leader, announced that the group would confront any American aggression, continue to attack Israel-linked ships, and allow safe passage to other nations' vessels passing through the Red Sea and the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. Meanwhile, Iran condemned the attacks as a blatant violation of Yemen's sovereignty and territorial integrity, as well as a violation of international laws and regulations. Early Thursday, the U.S. military had alleged that the Houthis had fired an anti-ship ballistic missile in the Gulf of Aden. On January 9th, the militant group had reportedly launched one of the most significant attacks in the Red Sea to date, with U.S. and British forces downing 18 drones and three missiles. Scott, thanks for those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative, and it comes from The Telegraph. The strikes targeting the Iranian-backed Houthis have come after diplomatic efforts by the U.S. and its allies failed to deter the rebels from further operations against international commercial shipping and U.S. and U.K. warships. The decisive action against the militants proves that the West stands united in defense of international law and free trade. Since military power seems to be the only language the Houthis and Iran understand, the rules-based international order must not shy away from taking further action if necessary. Press TV brings us an establishment-critical narrative. With the U.S.-British aggression against Yemen, the West's moral bankruptcy in defense of its so-called rules-based order is now on full display. While Washington supports Israel's genocidal Gaza campaign, it's now bombing Yemen for the Houthis, daring to stand up for Palestinians by targeting Israeli-linked ships. As so often happens, the latest U.S. aggression is a recipe for more, not less, violence and instability. The West has deliberately expanded the Israel-Hamas war to distract from Israeli war crimes and will suffer the consequences of its heavy-handed actions. The nerds from Metaculus have a narrative for this story. They say there's an 8% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of war before 2025. World War III or WW3 was trending on Twitter last night. Let's hope, obviously, that's a huge exaggeration. Oh. That's how I first heard about this. I saw what's trending. Oh, my goodness. It's sad that I had to wonder if something like that really was happening. Hopefully, this is just an isolated thing. You know, people do throw that term around quite a bit. But to me, I'm not desensitized to it yet. I mean, no. when, I, when I hear that, it's yeah. still like puts me on high alert. Yes. Too soon is what people yeah. would say. Uh, right, right, yeah. right. Too, too soon. <clears throat> too Hopefully, soon. always too soon. House Speaker Johnson meets with OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, The Times of India, and Medium. The House Speaker Mike Johnson met with OpenAI CEO Sam Altman on Thursday to discuss how the government can regulate artificial intelligence, or AI, with Johnson saying, quote, 
they agree that there is unlimited potential in AI as well as that there are some dangers. Altman, whose recent removal from and subsequent reinstatement as CEO of the ChatGBT maker has led to calls for solid frameworks in the industry, also agreed with Johnson in calling for balancing, quote, AI's tremendous upside with mitigating its risks. Altman's brief yet surprising ousting from the company led to worries among investors and employees. The reinstatement of the CEO, who shifted the company to a capped profit model in 2019, also came with assurances of a new board of directors. This came a day after the House Financial Services Committee announced a bipartisan group focused on the impact of AI on the finance industry. Chairman Patrick McHenry, Republican of North Carolina, acknowledged AI's, quote, promise to transform society and our economy for the better, as well as its risks. This also follows U.S. President Joe Biden's executive order last October requiring AI developers to share the results of their safety tests on systems that are deemed to jeopardize national security or public safety with the federal government. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Observer. AI companies must cooperate with regulators to ensure this novel technology is built and used appropriately. These warnings are not just coming from concerned citizens and lawmakers, but also the industry's leading executives, from the leaders of OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google to Elon Musk. These companies already have the brains and capital to develop world-changing AI. They just need help implementing guardrails at the government level. Follow that with the establishment critical narrative coming from Wired. We should be careful before including the CEOs of these companies whose obvious goal is to monopolize the power and profit of AI in discussions on how to regulate them. The so-called nonprofit OpenAI is suspiciously profitable, on top of the fact that it's basically become a subsidiary of Microsoft and put industry titans and former government officials on its board. If European governments, located far from the tech capital of Silicon Valley, are only requiring vague, quote, regulate-yourself policies, what can we expect from the U.S. government, whose ties to big tech are much closer? Narrative C comes from Reuters. AI is the future, and trying to set back its development won't solve any problems. AI offers a revolutionary means to address some of the world's biggest challenges, including inequity and even climate change. And it must be kept on its current track. Rather than trying to rein it in, the tricky areas of the technology simply need to be identified and work can be done to improve them while AI continues to develop at its current pace. The Metaculous Prediction community provides a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's an 85% chance that the research group responsible for developing the first artificial general intelligence will be part of a for-profit corporation. Next up, Britain boosts its Ukraine aid and signs a security agreement promising a 100-year partnership. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the official government website of the UK, BBC News, Reuters and The Guardian. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on Friday traveled to Ukraine to meet counterpart Volodymyr Zelensky. Ahead of his arrival, Sunak's office pledged that Britain would increase military aid to Ukraine to £2.5 billion, that's $3.19 billion American dollars, for the next financial year, up from 200 million pounds or 255 million American dollars from the previous two years of spending. Officials said most of the increased spending would be on British-made drones, adding that when the military package arrives in April, it will result in the largest delivery of drones to Ukraine by any country. The country's defense ministry will work with international partners to significantly scale up the number of drones provided for Ukraine's defense, the government statement added. Meanwhile, Sunak's office also said Britain would sign a historic agreement on security cooperation with Ukraine, stating this would formalize and extend the military support the UK has given to Ukraine. 
This includes intelligence sharing, cybersecurity, as well as medical and military training, officials said. It also committed the UK to swift and sustained assistance to Ukraine in the case it was attacked by Russia in a future conflict. Officials further said this security cooperation agreement, the first to come after G7 nations agreed to provide Ukraine with bilateral security assurances last year, would mark the first step in developing an unshakable 100-year partnership between Ukraine and the United Kingdom. Announcing his visit to Kyiv, Sunak said, For two years, Ukraine has fought with great courage to repel a brutal Russian invasion. They are still fighting, unfaltering in their determination to defend their country and defend the principles of freedom and democracy. I am here today with one message. The UK will also not falter. We will stand with Ukraine in their darkest hours and in the better times to come. Scott, thanks for the facts. The pro-establishment narrative comes from UK's official website. The latest move from the UK demonstrates that it continues to stand strong with Ukraine and will remain unwaveringly at its side. This agreement cements the strong bond between the nations and extends it for many years. It also demonstrates to Russia that Western support for Ukraine is not going away. The establishment critical narrative comes from Politico. Despite the facade of calm after nearly two years of war, Ukraine is in serious danger. Not only are billions of dollars of military aid being held up in the EU and the US, Ukraine's mobilization law has reached a stumbling block and is becoming too toxic to handle. Furthermore, Ukraine says it needs 3 million additional Ukrainians working in order to generate enough tax to pay the new troops. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 29% chance that Ukraine will join the EU before 2030. Polish opposition holds a mass anti-government protest. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Warsaw Voice and First News. Supporters of the now-opposition party Law and Justice, or PIS, rallied outside Poland's parliament Thursday to protest changes to public media that Prime Minister Donald Tusk's new government has introduced, as well as against the arrest of former Interior Minister Mariusz Kaminski and his deputy Maciej Wansik. The rally, which has been dubbed the Protest of Free Poles, was the largest anti-government demonstration since the ruling coalition took office in mid-December testing the opposition's ability to mobilize voters ahead of local elections in April and European Parliament elections in June. The National Conservative PIS, which had been in office for eight years until last month, put the number of people in the crowd amid cold-weather temperatures at 300,000. But Warsaw's civic platform-controlled City Hall estimated the figure to be roughly 35,000. Meanwhile, President Andrzej Duda announced that pardon proceedings have started for Kaminsky and von Zieck whom he claimed are the first political prisoners in the country since 1989 after they were handed two-year jail sentences for abuse of power. Regarding the public media reforms that Culture Minister Bartłomiej Sienkiewicz pushed through, the Commercial Division of the National Court Register ruled that management changes to TVP were illegal. Yet a spokesperson for the European Commission told the news site Euroactive that such an overhaul is needed. In another recent development, the Supreme Court ruled that a national vote for the lower house of parliament, known as the same, and the Senate held in October was valid after finding that only 14 out of more than 1,000 electoral protests concerning the parliamentary elections were justified, but didn't affect the result. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Euronews. Tusk was expected to face an uphill battle to free Polish institutions from the political control of the undemocratic PIS. However, the situation has proved harder than he and his plural coalition might have envisioned. During its eight-year rule, PIS was able to overcome power-balancing mechanisms to gain control over public media services as well as the judiciary. 
The establishment critical narrative comes from Telegraph. These developments expose the hypocrisy of European liberal circles. If any other political leader adopted Tusk's tactics, there would be outrage, disquiet, and widespread claims of illiberalism. Yet, the simple fact that Tusk is a Brussels-backed former president of the European Council apparently gives him a free pass to do whatever he pleases. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that Poland's Economist Democracy Index will be at least 7.14 in 2030. News from the U.S.-Mexico border, Texas blocks the feds from accessing Eagle Pass. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, Rolling Stone Magazine, and CBS News. Tensions between U.S. President Joe Biden's administration and Texas Governor Greg Abbott intensified after the governor blocked the federal U.S. Border Patrol from accessing miles of land near Eagle Pass, Texas, along the U.S.-Mexico border. While daily migrant encounters in Eagle Pass have dropped from thousands, to about 500 this week. Overall border crossings have dropped from 10,000 per day in December to 3,000 in January. According to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the decline in border crossings is due to agreements between the U.S. and Mexico, including Mexico enhancing its immigration enforcement on public transportation, moving migrants from Mexico's northern border to its southern border, and reinstating deportations of Venezuelans. Texas National Guard soldiers have taken control of Shelby Park and Eagle Pass, with the Border Patrol Union, which praised the move, telling Fox News that federal agents were blocked from entering the area, which has now included razor wire fences to quell illegal crossings. Eagle Pass Mayor Rolando Salinas said he didn't request the National Guard, but that it was part of Abbott's emergency declaration. Abbott's security measures have also included river barriers across a 1,000-foot section of the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass. In response, the Biden administration has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene, arguing that the barriers are an escalation of the state's measures to block Border Patrol's ability to patrol or even to surveil the border and respond to emergencies. Meanwhile, Abbott's office said the state will continue to deploy Texas National Guard soldiers, DPS troopers, and more barriers. On Thursday, the governor said the only reason they're stopping short of shooting migrants is because, of course, the Biden administration would charge us with murder, prompting widespread criticism. This follows Abbott's signing of Bill SB4 last month, which allows state law enforcement to arrest, jail, and prosecute migrants on state criminal charges of illegal entry. While the federal government claims this is jeopardizing the safety of both migrants and law enforcement, Texas argued that it's to restrict access to organizations that perpetuate illegal immigrant crossings. Scott, thanks for those facts. The left narrative comes from Washington Post. The Democrats have fumbled the ball on immigration and must make a change, or else they'll risk handing immigration powers over to the extreme right, such as Trump-like members of the GOP. The current immigration issue relates to asylum seekers, a system that is completely broken in the country and cannot afford to take in any more applicants. There are likely tens of millions of migrants already in the U.S. that we should focus on processing first. But in the meantime, the Democrats should support capping more arrivals until those already here have been legalized. And the right narrative spin from the Federalist. The liberal accept anyone and everyone mantra is coming home to roost all across the U.S. Immigrants from all over the world have for over a decade been overtaking populations, ranging from coastal cities like Boston, to Midwestern hubs like Sioux City, Iowa, where districts have now had to translate their services into more than 150 languages. Schools have turned into violent institutions and public libraries and malls into inhospitable refugee camps. Bold actions like the ones taken by Governor Abbott are needed more than ever. 
The nerds of Metaculus say there's a 3% chance that the U.S. will deploy troops in Mexico without the Mexican government's cooperation before 2029. Hunter Biden pleads not guilty to federal tax charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, CBS, BBC News, CNN, Reuters, and New York Times. Hunter Biden, son of Democratic U.S. President Joe Biden, pleaded not guilty to nine federal charges Thursday, including failure to pay at least $1.4 million in taxes from 2016 to 2019, filing fraudulent tax returns in 2018, and tax evasion. In a California federal court, Biden responded, quote, not guilty when U.S. District Judge Mark Scarzi asked how he would plead to each of the nine charges. Scarzi set a trial date of June 20th. Biden is accused of spending his money on drugs, girlfriends, and luxurious items, including exotic cars, instead of paying his taxes on more than $7 million he made between 2016 and 2020 from business dealings. The charges against Biden, detailed in a 56-page indictment filed against him in December, stem from a years-long investigation by David Weiss, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, who was appointed as a special counsel in August. Biden, who previously pleaded not guilty to federal charges over felony gun offenses, faces up to 17 years in prison if convicted on the tax charges. Biden's plea comes one day after the Republican-led House Oversight and House Judiciary Committees voted to hold him in contempt of Congress for not submitting to a closed-door deposition in the impeachment inquiry against his father. Thanks, Eric. Washington Post brings us the Democratic narrative. The Republicans' impeachment probe and the high publicity of this trial are a distraction from former President Donald Trump's multiple criminal and civil charges, including his failed attempt to overturn the 2020 election. Hunter Biden has paid all his tax debts, including penalties and interest, so it's clear these charges are meant to ensure his plight remains in the news while his father campaigns to defeat Trump again. Biden is innocent until proven guilty. The GOP must stop using him as a surrogate to attack his father. The New York Post gives us a Republican narrative. The Biden administration is impeding criminal probes into the president's son by intentionally slow-walking investigative steps. As there is ample evidence the Bidens were partners in a corrupt family enterprise and the president has been involved in his son's finances, the Justice Department must pursue the case aggressively. Hunter Biden must face the consequences of his actions, while there must be more investigation into what else the president is hiding. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 25% chance that President Joe Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. The FAA to audit Boeing after the door incident. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Forbes, NBC News, CNBC, and Reuters. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration announced Friday that it will audit Boeing's manufacturing and production in an effort to bolster oversight after a passenger door plug blew off a 737 MAX 9 aircraft last week. The audit comes one day after the FAA announced an investigation into Boeing and will examine the 737 MAX 9's production line and its suppliers to evaluate Boeing's compliance with its approved quality procedures. The regulator will use the internal audit to determine if a third-party independent audit is necessary. Last Saturday, the FAA grounded 171 MAX 9s one day after Alaskan Airlines Flight 1282 had to make an emergency landing because a door plug flew off the aircraft, exposing the fuselage. No one was sitting in the seats where the panel flew off, and no passengers or crew were seriously injured in the incident. FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker told CNBC that the 737 MAX 9 had significant problems and that his agency believes there are other manufacturing problems. 171 planes remain grounded. 
and the FAA said that the MAX 9 will not fly until it passes all safety inspections. Meanwhile, Alaska and United Airlines have both reported finding loose parts on grounded MAX 9s. In the wake of last week's incident, Boeing Chief Executive Officer David Calhoun has said that the large aircraft manufacturer acknowledges its mistake and is going to approach it with 100% and complete transparency every step of the way. Calhoun said that he is confident in the FAA's inspections, and CNN reports that a Boeing source believes the mistake was due to a problem in the airplane's production chain. Boeing shares fell 1.5% the morning after the FAA's announcement and nearly 12% since the door incident. Boeing, which is the largest plane manufacturer in the U.S., has had several safety incidents the past few years that have raised concerns from regulators. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a right narrative, and it comes from New York Post. Thankfully, no one was harmed during the dramatic incident in which a door panel flew off the side of a Boeing plane. However, there is a clear danger that a similar malfunction could become the norm. Corporate programs that focus on issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion have often been prioritized over safety initiatives. These firms need to refocus on quality and safety. Barron's brings us the left narrative. There was obviously a problem at some point in Boeing's production and manufacturing of the 737 MAX 9 involved in last week's incident. But the problem is not in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that are vital to a vibrant workforce. The issue is related instead on the private sector pursuing ruthless profits and cutting corners in the production process. More regulation and oversight are needed. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 16% chance that there will be commercial service to travel between London and New York City in under three hours before 2030. United Kingdom maternity deaths hit a 20-year high. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NewsMedical.net, The Guardian, and the University of Oxford. A study by the University of Oxford has found that the maternal mortality rate between 2020 and 2022 has reached a 20-year high of 13.41 deaths per 100,000 pregnancies. This is an increase from 8.79 in the prior three-year period and the greatest spike since 2003 to 2005, when the rate stood at 13.95 per 100,000 pregnancies. Removing deaths due to COVID complications, maternal mortality rates in 2020 to 2022 rose to 11.54. The data, based on all women who died during pregnancy or within six weeks after giving birth, has been released ahead of the study, which is due to be published later in 2024. The study claims thrombosis and thromboembolism to have been the, quote, leading cause of direct maternal deaths in the UK between 2020 and 2022, followed by COVID, suicide, sepsis due to pregnancy-related infections, cardiac disease, and neurological conditions. The study's COVID figure only included maternal deaths directly tied to complications from the disease, not women who had COVID but died from other causes. Thanks, Eric, for that story. We have a narrative A from The Guardian. The UK's worrying new report is only a single example within a wider global trend. The report lacks any silver lining and even sadly points toward drastically higher rates of maternal mortality within the UK's most deprived areas. While data is not uniform, maternal health care is in dire need of reform and repair worldwide as governments continue to ignore what has remained a growing issue in recent years. Narrative B comes from National Health Executive. The UK government is undertaking a series of reforms in order to implement recommendations on improving maternity services. The state continues to turn numerous policies advised by independent investigations into a reality. As long as workforce and capital investment is sustainably secured, maternity services will only see an upward trend in the future. Our final story, a newly discovered space megastructure prompts cosmology questions. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, Sky News, BBC News, and The Guardian. A PhD student at the UK's University of Central Lancashire, Alexia Lopez, has discovered the Big Ring, a ring-shaped megastructure about 1.3 billion light-years in diameter and more than 9 billion light-years away from Earth. Lopez's discovery brings into doubt the cosmological principle, which states that the universe is homogenous above a certain spatial scale and appears identical across each direction. Both the Big Ring and Giant Arc are found close to each other near the constellation Bootes, which means the two could be part of a larger connected structure within the universe. To analyze the Big Ring, Lopez and her team use several statistical algorithms to reveal that while it looks like a perfect ring in the sky, it is the shape of a corkscrew when aligned to the Earth's perspective. The Big Ring, which looks to be the size equivalent of 15 full moons in the night sky, violates the theory that though stars, planets, and galaxies are large collections of matter in our eyes, they are insignificant in the context of the whole universe, and that bigger groupings of matter theoretically should not form. The current consensus is based on the theory of gravitational instability, which states that the formation of large structures in the universe is limited to 1.2 billion light-years in size. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had enough time to develop. Lopez, who also discovered the 3.3 billion light-year-in-diameter giant arc in 2021, said the data being analyzed is so far away that it has taken half the universe's life to get to us. There have been other massive structures discovered too, such as the Sloan Great Wall at 1.5 billion light-years in diameter and the South Pole Wall at 1.4 billion light-years. However, the largest ever found is the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall, which stretches approximately 10 billion light-years across. University of Warwick professor Don Polacco said, The likelihood of this occurring is vanishingly small, adding that while more research needs to be done, some speculate that we are seeing a relic from the early universe, where waves of high and low-density material are frozen into extragalactic medium. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Big Think. Discovering unique phenomena in the universe shouldn't surprise us, as the so-called cosmological principle began to weaken decades ago with the observation of differing mass measurements and galaxy counts. While this still aligns with the Big Bang theory of an expanding universe, the difference now is that we know older, more distant galaxies are bluer, lower in mass, and less evolved in their shape. This discovery shows a whole new texture of the growing universe. Narrative B comes from Medium. The Big Bang Theory depends on the accuracy of the cosmological principle. While there may be some variation among galaxy clusters, particularly closer ones, observational studies, which is what these theories are based upon, show the overall patterns of distant matter are spread out uniformly throughout the universe. An important idea to consider is that differences in the irregular clumps of matter weren't made by the aftermath of the Big Bang but actually repeated nucleosynthesis from supernovas. I know this is a shocker, but yes, there is a nerd narrative for this story. Coming from Metaculus, there's an 80% chance that the universe will end. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> actually, I think that's kind of low, right? Because I mean, what's the yeah. alternative? It'll go forever? Isn't that Yeah, amazing? I guess, yeah. Wow. Do they mean tomorrow? Yes, yeah. so. Let's hope it ends on Monday. I want to get my weekend <laughs> You know, it, it would be a real shame to end on Saturday. I know yeah. it would. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, January 13th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.